Good gosh darn running friends. <laughs> Fuck are you talking about? <laughs> oh man, we're less than three seconds into the show and we've already dropped an F-bomb. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we're the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are looking at Hellblazer issues 17, 18, and 19. It's the middle trilogy of the super trilogy known as the Fear Machine. Right, right. I heard it put forth in a Xanth book one time, Piers Anthony, that a trilogy should actually be 27 books, because that's not 3 squared, it's 3 cubed. Nah, that guy had some problems. <laughs> he also had a, a lot of ambition. I mean, <laughs> the world of Xanth, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been detailed across several centuries and numerous generations <laughs> by dozens and dozens of books. There's so, a lot of books. Yeah. But we are talking today about a trilogy of issues, which is the middle part of a nine-part story called The Fear Machine. So where we left John Constantine, he had gone into London to investigate the abduction of a girl named Mercury? Yeah, that's right. The group of traveling hippies that he had been spending his time with. Because he was wanted by the police for a Satanist murder that he didn't commit. Right. They were attacked by... A squad of gangster police, not police who catch gangsters, but police who are gangsters. Right, not gangster squad. Right. And they were basically run out of town and had their little girl or adolescent girl stolen and kidnapped. Because she has psychic powers. That's right. And in addition, John has been encountering some, some mystical goings-on with ley lines and stone circles... It's also worth noting that John's former lady friend, Zed, who he thought killed at the end of his previous adventure, may have been spotted alive. That's right. He was told that by one of his hippie friends. Now, basically, there's a company called Geotronics going around, and they're doing some kind of experiments on stone circles to influence ley lines. And he had kind of a weird experience where he was on acid, but then he got over the acid, but then he saw them doing something to the, to the stones, and it made him go on to a trip again. Right, yeah. I don't think it was acid. I think it was some kind of weird... No, mushroom. you're right. It was a fly amanita. Right, yeah. Okay, so that brings us to Hellblazer issue number 17, Fellow Travelers. This issue was written by Jamie Delano and features art by Mike Hoffman. But first, we got a cover by Dave McKeon, and this is one of my favorite Hellblazer covers so far. We've got a train that is visible only as windows against the black. And inside, we have John smoking coolly, completely alone. Yeah, and there's also kind of an eyeball in the background of the image. Yeah, that's right. A purple iris surrounding a black pupil at the center of the page. So, just as advertised, we find John Constantine on the train. He's got a little old lady sitting across from him. She points to a no-smoking sign, just as he fills the room with a cloud of smoke. Yeah, this is the second time that we have seen John smoking on a train despite the no-smoking sign, but the first one hasn't happened yet canonically. That's in the horrors. Young man, I don't want to breathe your poisonous fumes all the way to London. And don't mutter at me, or I'll call a guard. 
Meanwhile, Mr. Webster, the head of Geotronics Security, gets a phone call, and he's got his feet up on his desk so we can see that he has very nice shoes. Now, previously, we saw a Geotronics scientist named Fulton in a vision that Mercury was having being hanged by a man with really nice shoes. Yeah, and these are those same mad shoes. Meanwhile, we've got a man in glasses and a brown shirt. He's looking in on Mercury, who he describes as powerful but peaceful. Dr. Fulton, the man with the mad shoes, asks, I've been calling you. Why don't you answer? Fulton apologizes, saying he forgot his beeper. And Webster says, that's careless, Dr. Fulton. Remember, carelessness costs lives. Yeah, he says there's an emergency going on, and they need their most able psychic tracker. Also, probably worth note that Webster is taking over this emergency in the absence of the director. Yes. A mysterious character we have not yet seen. So they need a psychic tracker, and Fulton suggests that Mercury is too new, too untrained. Instead, they should use someone who has more experience, a Corporal Morgan. So they go into Corporal Morgan's room, and they fill him in on the situation. We find Corporal Morgan in the midst of making a model city out of paper, cutting up the pieces with scissors. Are you sure he's making a model city and not uh, a model ring of standing stones? That's a good point. I read it as a city, but it could be a stone circle. Anyway, they fill him in on the situation. Russian spies have been identified operating on UK soil. They're hunting one of them now, a man named Sergei Antonov of the Leningrad Institute of Paranormal Research. Now, they say that this guy is the partner of a Soviet agent that was found dead near one of the stone circles. I'm thinking that's the guy that John ran into who was doing some kind of experiment. I do seem to remember him speaking something that we found incomprehensible at John, maybe some Cyrillic. Yeah, I think that happened. And later on, when Constantine gets into a conversation with the other Russian, sorry, spoilers, <laughs> he says that they sound alike. Right, right. So yeah, the, uh, the Russian psychic spies are trying to horn in on the British psychic experiments, and they want Morgan to stop them. We're hitting a number of genres today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But they've narrowed down Antonov's location to a train heading from Bristol to London. And as Morgan scries in on the train, we see that that is the very train John is aboard. I was actually surprised when it turns out there is a Russian agent on the train. But the first time I read this, I thought they were lying to Morgan to get him to track down John. Yeah, that was my initial suspicion as well. But I quickly discarded that because there's no way they would have known to look for John yet. Yeah, that's right. He had sort of swiped Marge from police custody, but that in itself wouldn't attract their attention that much. Yeah, they, they had a little run-in with him, kind of, but they think he's just another dirty hippie. Yeah. So, they say that there isn't time to get a team to intercept the train, but for ten miles it runs parallel with a ley line, which means they have no choice but to hit the agent with a charge from the machine. That's right. Meanwhile, on the train itself, John is stuck in what he finds to be quite a boring conversation with a train spotter. Aren't you interested in train spotting, then? In a word, no. John blows this guy off and then steps on another person's foot while looking for a place to smoke on the train, and then he thinks to himself, 
Jesus, why is the world chock full of grotesques and weirdos? Hmm, because it's being written by Jamie Delano, I guess. Well, yeah, I like that he's being a nuisance and he decides that everybody else is being a nuisance. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Although, I, I guess social standards were pretty different at the time as regards smokers. Yeah. So back in the Geotronics facility, we find Fulton explaining the fear machine to Webster. They say that they've improved on the megalithic system for controlling ley lines. In other words, the stone circles have always been a system for interacting with them, and they've found a way to interact with that system. You can scare people to death? To put it crudely, yes. Psychic assassins? Confirmed. <laughs> yeah, so they say that they uh, intensify and focus a charge of negativity they send into the geotechnical web, which is to say the ley line system. There was some pretty good techno battle on this page. I enjoyed it. Yeah, this really worked for me. Once we find out the details of what they're doing, they're actually, like, surprisingly both coherent and consistent to the their own set of rules. Right, yeah. Uh, which is more than we sometimes get from this series. So, that's great. So, Morgan steps into a replica stone circle that they've built in the Geotronics facility, and he releases a charge of fear. Now, as Constantine makes his way through the train, this is before the charge hits, before anything has actually happened, he looks around, and everything he sees is sort of troubling and depressing. He sees there's a man reading pornography while sitting across from two young ladies, one of whom is saying that she'd sleep with the old pervert for 50 quid. He passes by a room of children going nuts while one seemingly adult is distracted reading Lord of the Flies. Yeah, there's another adult who's got his hands thrown up in despair, and he's saying that he'll never take them on a school outing again. I guess he's their teacher. And he notes that a shady guy in sunglasses seems to be following him around, and that's our Russian spy, Antonov. Now, John is muttering to himself, why isn't there a nuisance-free zone on this train? It's interesting to see, you know, John slash Jamie Delano's regular dose of cynicism is here, but also I think that we see that John is now unaccustomed to the daily inconveniences of crowded city living, given the time he's spent out in the boonies. Oh yeah, that's a good point. He's had a little break from civilization, and it's not so smooth coming back in. Now, Morgan hears the instructions from Dr. Fulton, and remember, stay with it. I want to know what happens, as we see a green mist that resolves into Morgan's silhouette flying toward the train. It transforms into a screaming demon as it overtakes the speeding train. Yeah, now we're going to find out that this is the first time that they've had Morgan stay psychically connected to the targets after using the fear machine on them. The train rocks, and John, smoking in the toilet, sees this green mist rise up out of the toilet, and it is followed by two shit demons. Oh yeah, that's what happens. Fucking gross. There's a scared John face on this page that is quite something. Yeah, Mike Hoffman kind of draws John so that he looks a little bit like an old man. Okay. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of lines on the face, and that's not really consistent with the Constantine as I'm familiar with him. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's especially a big departure from, I think, during the first part of this story arc when he was hanging around with hippies, his face was really drawn to make him look very young. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it doesn't help that in this panel, 
the panel border cuts off his hair so that he looks bald. Right. So, yeah, we get two two-page spreads here of just all hell breaking loose on this train. Everybody on the train is panicking, and they're saying out loud whatever fear they're witnessing. A dog with no face. Sawbones, the sawbones. It's sticking to me. I'm suffocating. Now, John actually doesn't guess correctly what this is right away. He thinks that this is hell coming for him. Right. What's happening, Morgan? It's a, it's a psychic shock, sir. They took a full it. Now they're soaking it up. I want to point out before we move on that a couple of the guys on the train conclude that whatever is happening, it means that they're dead. And since we're dead, we can do anything we like. And they, yeah. they seem to be sexually assaulting some of the women on the train. Yeah, they, the guys immediately attack a couple of the women. And I couldn't tell if this was the old pervert and the same two young women as before. Right. I thought this was fairly gratuitous. They don't seem to be affected by the fear machine so much as just acting barbaric. Yeah, I agree. And there's, honestly, um, this whole two-page spread, or this it's actually two two-page spreads in a row, and then a fifth page of chaos. The whole thing is kind of gratuitous. It's just hard to follow, and there's bizarre stuff going on with the panels that isn't necessary. This is just an opportunity where the storytelling could have been a lot more crisp, I think. Mm, okay. But we're seeing here what the fear machine does when it hits people, and... It's pretty horrific. Many of the people seem now to be dead or dying of fear, as John upbraids himself for not handling things better. Come on, man. You're supposed to be able to handle this shit. You can do better than this. John finds himself alive and is approached by an old woman with her knitting. I've managed to stop the dreadful screaming, but I couldn't get the needles out. As we see her silhouette with needles sticking out of her ears to both sides. Yuck. Yeah. Think, man, think. What's causing this insanity? Mass psychosis? Drugs in the tea? Not hell. Too clumsy for hell. John decides this must be connected with the G-man who is following him. He needs to keep a purpose in mind to keep hold of himself, so he decides to follow that guy. Yeah, and as all this is going down, we keep getting panels of Morgan's eyes as he you know, is psychically connected and watching in horror and perspiring heavily. John checks compartments and finds that various people have either died of fear or uh, hurt or killed themselves in the pandemonium. The teacher seems to have hanged himself, and there's a kid here who swallowed his own arm. I gotta say, these panels might be scarier if the art was a little better. I kind of can't tell what's really supposed to be going on. Yeah, I agree with that. Although I think the... The close-ups on Morgan are pretty effective. So, John finds the agent and laughs maniacally as he grabs him. And then we turn the page to find that John doesn't have the guy. Yeah, he must have uh, shaken him loose. Yeah, that or maybe John grabbing the guy was actually not something that happened. It was just that guy's fear. Hmm. Anyway, the G-man pulls his gun to shoot at John, but the train spotter interferes. Yeah, and he takes a bullet, followed by the G-man, who we know is actually the Russian, getting hit by the fear charge. Now, before he dies, the train spotter is trying to warn them that the train is going too fast and will jump the curve. 
I'm not sure whether that's true or that's what the train spotter's afraid of, but it does give John the idea to pull the emergency cord. Right. Also, as he shoots the train spotter, this is the point where he speaks in the Cyrillic script. Right. John pulls the emergency cord, but it looks like they're going too fast and the train derails. Right. I don't think pulling the emergency cord causes a train to derail. That uh, wouldn't make any sense Yeah, to that it. would be a really strange but, sequence of events. But it's going too fast and it's too late to pull the cord before they, uh, before they crash in the tunnel. John survives this crash, as does the G-Man. John remembers at this point that the guy he saw messing with the stones a couple of issues ago was also speaking Russian. I thought the Cold War was over, John muses, which kind of lampshades the use of Russian and, and Western agents clashing in this story, even though the Cold War is over. Right. Well, what year was this? What uh, year did this, this issue is, come out? This is 89. Okay. Isn't it generally thought that the Cold War ended with the fall of the Soviet Union in 91 or 92? Well, I think the Berlin Wall was down. Oh, yeah. That's, I guess there was a period of, like, peace and cooperation before that. Right. Anyway, John deduces that the Russian was the target and decides that whoever would hit a whole train just to get one spy must be a bad guy. Right. Now... It's only been moments since the crash, but already the gangster police squad shows up. Right, but they are distracted by a woman in her underwear long enough for John to get out of sight. And I think this is our first, the first mention that we hear of Beale. One of the men says, Christ, what's up with old Beale tonight? Must have been on the nest when they called us out. We actually have encountered rumors of Beale before. He was borrowing an office in the police station when John went there to retrieve Marge. Yeah, sorry, it's the first mention of him in this issue, I believe. Right. And in this episode of our show. John watches from out of sight, knowing that these are the guys who have Mercury, and is tempted to shoot their leader with the Russian's gun. But he says to himself, shooting people is wrong, or so I heard. Yeah, also, I think it's just a really bad tactical decision. He's yeah. got a gun there without a silencer, and... You know, a whole squad of guys. He wouldn't be able to do much damage against them before they took him out. Right, yeah. Especially not with a Russian slung over his shoulder. Right, he carries the Russian out of sight and then takes off alone, thinking, I wonder if this makes me a fellow traveler. Dropping the title there. Beale's men are on sight now, Mr. Webster. They haven't found him yet. How will we ever justify the loss of life? Don't be stupid, Fulton. There are no witnesses. I see. It weren't right, sir. You shouldn't have made me do it, sir. You shouldn't have made me watch. It was necessary, Morgan. I needed to know. But all the people, all the terrible things that happened to people. I was right there with them, doing it to them. I was never so close before. Not in the Falklands, nor in Ireland. I was never inside them when they died. On the last page, we find Mercury asleep before she suddenly wakes. He's sobbing again, and Mercury knows what's going to happen. Back in his room, Morgan picks up the scissors. She tries to shut it out, but it happens anyway, just like it always does. And the death of Morgan that we saw flashed forward to in the previous issue has now taken place. Exactly as Merc predicted it. Yeah, and we see, and this is kind of a symbolically appropriate final panel of the issue. His little models 
that he's been making out of paper of the standing stones are now splattered with his blood. Oh, yeah, that's definitely the standing stones. Good call. I liked the ending of this issue. The art shift between this issue and the last one posed kind of a problem. I found Morgan more or less unrecognizable from the character we met last issue. Really, Mercury's vision of his death should have been the beginning of this issue, not the last one. Yeah, that's true. Its its placement was kind of confusing where it was before. But I did like how the previous issue got to end on an ominous note. Mm -hmm. It was confusing, mm -hmm. but it also gave us some stakes, which the storyline was desperately needing at that time. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, Hellblazer number 18. Hate mail and love letters. All right, this is written by Jamie Delano, art by Mark Buckingham and Alfredo Alcala, with a cover by Dave McKeon. And is that a spoon? There is a spoon and a razor blade and a flower and sort of a face on the upper part of the page, all of which is superimposed over a typed letter. We open on an old lady. She is listening to the news and none of it good. It's been a couple of weeks now, and it seems like... The villains of this piece, the government conspiracy, were too inept to keep Morgan's suicide or the train crash out of the news. Yeah, that's right. We hear that the Ministry of Defense is being sued for negligence in the death of Colin Morgan. The train crash made the news, but the blame seems to have been successfully redirected. The inquest is now claiming that the driver, George Whelan, ignored the speed limits and the signals. Well, and there's a speculation here that the railway police had made off with a bottle of whiskey that Whelan had, hiding it from the investigating police. The lady thinks to herself that there's never any good news, what's the world coming to, and she mentions that the world must be crappy if you even have to be afraid of the postman. She looks out the window and sees the postman coming, and she dreads it. And sure enough, she intercepts a piece of hate mail intended for her husband, Mr. Clean Bastard Talbot. We're not able to read the entire letter at this point. The way it's framed just gives us kind of scraps of it. But it's clear that other cops are upset with her husband for some reason. Her husband, we get his name, is Jeffrey Talbot. Yeah. The letter mentions something about uh, murdering her with a razor. And actually, she goes up into the bathroom and commits suicide with a razor, along with a bottle of pills. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a pretty spooky way of beginning the issue. We won't find out what all of this is about for a little while, but we get a few clues. We know that her husband's name is Joffrey Talbot, and he's a policeman. Yeah, I thought that this was a pretty effective and creepy uh, sequence of pages to start off the issue with. Yeah, before we move on, I want to call out this line. Joffrey always said that there were truly evil people in the world. She knew he was right, but somehow she could only ever think of their mothers. Yeah, and as she kills herself, she signs the mirror, Goodbye, Jeffrey. I'm sorry. I love you, Jay. Issue then takes us away to another mother. This is Marge. Yep, and she is in Scotland, where she's been hanging out with Pagan Nation. They're a group of very adept magical hippies who are effective in using the ley line energy. They're in touch with something strong here. Not just posing, but really in touch, she says in a letter she's writing to John. You should see the things they grow. She explains that the Earth is their mother and their lover, and there's an energy to the community, 
into their interactions with the Earth that she has to describe as sexual. This is a female place. Yeah, I thought that was kind of amusing. She also says that she can't wait for John to retrieve Mercury and for the both of them to be there with her. Last night, she says she had a religious experience. There is this woman, who we see here has a blonde ponytail and is otherwise bald, with a lightning bolt tattooed above her left eye. She sang beautifully for hours. It turned me on, John. It turned everybody on. Especially Errol. You see, this was his old girlfriend, Zed, and she was irresistible. It's Zed! She's alive, and she's in this story arc. Yeah, and she's doing shit in this story arc, not just, you know, being seen and mentioned, as we will shortly behold. Yeah, and she's radically changed since the last time we saw her. She had some white in her black hair when we first met her. That's right. And now she has barely any hair, and what there is seems to be white, and this new tattoo. And now she's a pagan instead of a mm, somewhat devout Christian? I guess she was trying to avoid her somewhat devout Christian family. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But the religious experience continued with her leading them among the stones and everybody having an orgy. Is everybody having an orgy or is everybody just hanging out while she and, and Errol have sex? Well, she says, and then there they were, right at our feet, doing it, loving one another amongst the stones. Then so was everyone else. It was right. It was the only thing to do. This boy was standing next to... Oh, I don't even want to read that. We'll just leave it at the only thing to do. Well, she says that this guy couldn't have been more than 16, and he is clearly much more than 16 in the art. <laughs> yeah, Marge is pretty, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Lax with the age of consent, I guess? Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess I don't know what the age of consent was in, in Britain at this time, but uh, I did think it was kind of gross and irresponsible of her that she's... You know, she's talking about how great this orgy was, but she also can't wait to have her adolescent daughter back with her and, you know, for her to take part in it as well. Ugh, yeah, yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but that's a good point. She is consistently irresponsible, and what with Mercury being arguably the more mature of the two, that creates an interesting dynamic between the two of them. Yeah, I think that... The story makes it clear that one of her downfalls as a parent is, or maybe the source of all her downfalls as a parent, is that she tends to treat Mercury as an, another adult. Yeah, that's right. Uh, rather than really functioning as a mother to her. So, Constantine, back in London now, uh, about to receive this letter, is walking into the boarding house where he's staying. We see him walking through the rain, singing to himself, and as far as I can tell, he is singing... Del Shannon's 1961 hit Runaway. As he muses, perfect weather for suicide, really, I suppose. Yeah, that's a great song. If I've called that correctly, this is incredibly creepy. Because this issue came out in May 1989, and in February of 90, Del Shannon committed suicide. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. That's a pretty harsh coincidence there. Yeah. So John enters the Hotel Oscar Wilde. Right, and his two... Landlords give him a bit of a razzing about coming in all wet. Yeah, that's right. And they're also very cheerful about the fact that one of their tenants has written a piece to appear in The Guardian. Right, a young journalist named Simon Hughes. Yeah, we're brushing past it, but the byplay between these two is fun. They are a middle-aged gay couple that runs this hotel. 
<laughs> yeah, and one of them flirts with John on his way up the stairs, and is just awesome. <laughs> it's really entertaining. Simon's article, incidentally, is about how people connected with geotronics keep committing suicide in strange, gruesome ways. John begins writing a letter of his own, a response to Marge's letter. Is that a cat out in the rain watching him? Yeah, I think so. From through the window? Yep. He says that thanks to the Sun article blaming him for the Satanist murders, now none of his old contacts are talking to him except the hard-line Satanists. And he refers to himself as mad, bad, and dangerous to know, which is a phrase coined by Lady Carolyn Lamb to describe Lord Byron. But the story he starts telling her is about how he feels he's finally on the right track. He goes on for a little while here. First of all, I like that he makes fun of... I like that he mocks Satanists as gross perverts who think that bollocks is magic. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He says they can only get it up if it's been dipped in goat's blood first. <laughs> yeah, and then we have a scene where he goes to Chaz's storage unit and gets out his collection of 19th century Japanese pillow books to sell them to pay his hotel bill. Now, as I understand it, pillow books are like racy memoirs written by courtesans? Yeah, more or less. I think it's it's just slang for diary. Okay. The most famous one is by a 10th century courtier. So that, that wouldn't be what he has, because he says his are from the 19th century. Right. Anyway, he heads into this dive in Soho, and he runs into Detective Chief Inspector Jeff Talbot. Yeah, now, you can tell that this is a strip club. There's a nude woman dancing on the stage behind mm -hmm. Talbot. Talbot also seems to have caught the eye of another woman at the bar. Yeah, he's on the verge of telling all to this woman who John sends off with a bribe, maybe implying that she's a prostitute? Yeah, I wasn't sure if she was a prostitute or some kind of spy or something. Whatever's being implied here, it's, again, it's not crisp. Right, well, John says that not a bad bloke, old Jeff, except for being a cop. Yeah, now he finds something interesting out, which is Talbot tells him that the police never really thought it was him. They just needed something to give to the press. And that's referring to the murders of Constantine's former landlady and his downstairs neighbor at the hands of Nurgle at the end of the previous story arc. Yeah, and John is not taking that news well. He's still pretty pissed at the suggestion that he wasn't completely innocent. Talbot also mentioned that the uh, forensics team turned up nothing but nonsense. Basically, there's no physical way that the crime could have happened. Yeah, well, that makes sense, because it was committed by a super strong demon. Right, exactly. Same thing that happened to the four racists way back in issue number seven or eight. Yes, that's true. Iron Fist the Avenger. Yeah, yeah. Well, we start to get into... The source of Jeff Talbot's problems here, he says he's too nice to be a cop and doesn't have friends on the force. He turned up some serious badness in an internal affairs investigation, and he didn't settle for some junior Bobby's neck. Right, he went as far up the chain of command as he could go. And the top of that chain of corruption was Beale and his black squad, an off-the-book special unit run by a crooked DCI with his hands in the stash box, the worst specimens of gangster cop. Oh, yeah, he says that the only thing Talbot hates more than criminals is bent law. Right. Yeah, now, I just want to make sure I have this straight here. John found the guys who took Mercury on accident by going into a bar. 
<laughs> yeah, well, when you put it that way, <laughs> that explains why he does most of his investigating by going into bars. Right, that is his own particular investigative style hard at work there. Now, by this time, John and Jeff are what John describes as just about stocious. And they catch a cab back to Talbot's place. Yeah, and there, unfortunately, they find the scene that we left at the beginning of this issue. With Talbot's wife having committed suicide. Right. John finds a bloody handkerchief, it looks like. Yeah, and we learn from Jeff in the cab ride that he has also been hiding hate mail from his wife. They were both hiding hate mail that the other one didn't know about. Yeah, they had good intentions, but it would have been better for them to stick through it together. So John decides he needs to attend the funeral. He needs to talk to Jeff again. It's all starting to come together, Marge, he concludes the letter. Don't worry, we'll soon have her back. She'll be alright. She's a tough kid. Take it easy. Love, John. Now, I like here that he mentions he's been reading relevant articles in a magazine called Lay Hunter about ley lines and pieces about the bizarre suicides of the Geotronics employees. He's been doing some actual detective work. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. Even though he broke the case by going into a bar and happening to meet the right guy there. I also think it's kind of ironic, maybe a little bit funny, that at the end of the previous... Well, at the end of the issues that we covered in our previous episode... Mercury says that she knows she's tough enough to to handle her captivity. It's Marge she's worried about. Yeah, that's right. And Marge seems to be doing fine, you know? She's distracted by powerful earth magic and orgies and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's true. She's really relying on John to handle, I mean, both the task of searching for Mercury and really the task of caring strongly about it. Yeah, the task of worrying about it. Right. The whole thing falls to him. So that brings us to the Geotronics facility, where Mercury is writing a letter she doesn't expect to be able to send. Dear Nosy Parker, Fulton has been teaching her to use her powers to help people, which is good because there are people who need her help badly. She's been taught to get inside people's minds. I like that she describes Fulton as trying to hide his thoughts from her, like Pete with the dope when the police would come. That's that's Mercury's idea of a more innocent example, which really tells you something about the childhood she's had. Right. Yeah, she also says that she thinks Fulton likes her, which is creepy. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty icky, but she says she's not afraid of him because she's much stronger than he is. And we will see that that is true. Actually, we kind of already have uh, in the issue where she showed him his death. Meanwhile, Fulton is talking to guy named Davis, who we've met a couple times before, talking about Mercury's powers. He says when it comes to emotional transference, she's an artist. The others are just painters. And that I think we're on the verge of discovering a whole new branch of physics. Yeah, he's in it for the science, I guess. But it turns out that basically what they have her doing is going into the heads of disturbed people who have, you know, severe problems with fear and chasing their fears into the fear machine, what they call the fear trap. Right. Davis, meanwhile, is worried that they're not giving the overseers what they want. Whoever Geotronic's mysterious bosses are, all this is not what they're really after. And they're right, also, they aren't interested in the pure science of it. Right, and they're also attracting too much attention. That's referring to the train disaster. Yeah, as I said, they've been too inept to keep this stuff out of the papers. Really not looking like a bunch of seasoned professionals. 
Should we talk about Bombsite Bill? Yeah, I think we should talk about Bombsite Bill. So, I like that she points out that here they know more about ley lines even than Eddie. But yeah, they've got two stone circles here, and one is the fear trap that she drives spears into. And we see her entering people's minds to get rid of their fears, even though, as she tells us, it's funny though, no matter how often I throw them out, they've always snuck back in a day or so. She's maybe not putting it together, but she's not really helping people, just harvesting their fears for geotronics. Yeah. So she enters the mind of a woman named Mrs. Corbett. And Mrs. Corbett, her nightmare is a guy named Bombsite Bill. He lives in bombed-out buildings, and he cuts the dead bodies into black market bacon. He also steals valuables, wears everybody's jewelry. Yeah, this is a kind of monster archetype from World War II wearing an old Kaiser helmet. And a big fur and what looks like somebody's dress. Sometimes he plays the drums with thigh bones on an unexploded bomb. And if you hear him, you have to go and dance with Bombsite Bill. He can't hurt me, though. He's not my terror. Yeah, she comes into the scene and slyly taps on the bomb that he's playing and it explodes, seemingly destroying Bombsite Bill. Right, he gets turned into a, a bloody carcass, uh, which she then drags to the fear trap. Mrs. Corbett always sleeps for two days after Merck chases out her terror. It's interesting that we have connections here to Nightmares and Dreaming this close to the Sandman crossover. Yeah, that's coming up quickly. It's coming up, I think, in the next issue. And it's interesting that Constantine is dealing with Nightmares and Dreams and it never actually comes up in either side of the crossover. Right. Anyway, yeah, she says that when she throws the terrors in the trap, she gets a glimpse of something growing in there. That's when I get scared. Perhaps it's my terror. That's some pretty creepy shit. Yeah, I like that a lot. Meanwhile, John decides to talk to Simon Hughes, and he breaks into the apartment across the hall. Yeah, he's just watched Simon's visitor, a romantic liaison, he thinks, uh, leave for the evening. And so he waits for him to go, and then comes in. I wondered about that, because as he's, as he's picking his way across the apartment... He complains that Simon is an untidy sort. Most gays are, he is beginning to think, most gays are neat. And I wondered how he knew that Simon was supposed to be gay. Well, he's been living next door to him for a while now. Right, yeah. Plenty of opportunity to pick it up. But anyway, what he finds is Simon in the wardrobe, trussed up and hanged. Yeah, dangling upside down with a plastic bag over his face. Sometimes frozen centuries can elapse while all you do is scream, wondering if you'll take another breath. That page would have been more effective without that. Uh... Without the narration? Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, mostly I liked that issue. I thought that the letter structure was kind of fun and cool. And if you have to jump around to several different plot lines, that's a good way to keep abreast of all of them. Yeah. It abandoned the epistolary structure in order to reach its final climax, which is, true. which is too bad, but it had a lot of good scares in it. It has mm -hmm. a lot of spooky stuff, including this attempted assassination that John just barely interrupts. Yeah, that's right. And the stuff that Merck is doing, uh, harvesting fear from people's minds, is really cool and really well presented. Yeah. Yeah, that was another part that I thought was pretty wicked. So, good comic book there. That brings us to Hellblazer number 19, The Broken Man. 
written by Jamie Delano, art by Mark Buckingham and Alfredo Alcala, and a cover by Dave McKeon. Yeah, and the cover says on it, I want your money, which is a little bit on the nose. It also informs us that this issue costs uh, $1.50 U.S., uh, pound 85 U.K. <laughs> now, what we see here is a ragged old guy in the foreground with Constantine and somebody, maybe Jeff Talbot, looking on. Yeah, and the guy seems to be sort of fading into mist. Yeah, and above I want your money is the line, I'm a broken man, which we're going to see again. Right. Okay, so in the first panel, on the first page, we see a guy in a ragged coat covered with patches. He is holding a stick. And we also see the crazy shoes on their way out of the building. Yeah, booking it past him as a scream rings out over the Hotel Oscar Wilde, which wakes up the landlord's Canon Harold. Yeah, and they are the least helpful innkeepers <laughs> you've ever seen. Yeah, so they come running and they find Constantine trying to get Simon Hughes breathing again. And even though John is wearing his jeans, they conclude this is a weird sex thing. Oh my lord, stop it! John shouts, don't just stand there like spare dicks at a wedding. Help me! Harold gingerly picks up a knife. I'm not sure where he got it. That's his burglar knife. Oh, okay. And he uh, cuts Simon free. They decide not to call an ambulance because it would embarrass some of the guests. Yeah, which I thought was pretty shitty. Yeah. Some of our guests have wives and reputations, Ken says. But Simon interrupts. It's all right. Don't need ambulance. Now, Ken finishes telling off Simon and John, uninvited, and then the landlords leave. Simon and John both crack up at the landlord's assumptions, and then Simon suddenly slips into something like a panic attack. Well, he's just laughing too hard when he can't quite breathe yet. Ah, okay. So John says, All right, old son, steady now. I love whenever John calls anybody old son. I think I've mentioned that before. Yeah, Simon is just now realizing that somebody actually tried to kill him. And John says, I know, mate, I know. Leaves a nasty taste in the mouth, doesn't it? Yeah, and we get a little bit of Simon's history here. Insane. Totally insane. I've upset some powerful people in the past, been slandered in the right-wing press, bugged and burgled, harassed by Special Branch, but no one ever tried to kill me before. Well, John gets Simon some brandy and puts him to bed, holds his hand until he falls asleep. This is an interesting scene. This hand, cool, damp, with a nervous pulse. This man's hand, John thinks. I had heard before I read this issue that John... Constantine is bisexual. Right. I wonder when I'm reading this story if he has figured it out yet. Well, it seems like Ray knew. Right. That's what I was thinking. Back in, I think, issue number nine, Zed asks Ray if he and John were ever a couple, and his answer is more, well, it never happened, then John doesn't swing that way. Right. Yeah, I think this is more just about, like, helping somebody else through a near-death experience. These days, we all need a hand to hold. In the dead of night, when the rain dashes itself in blind waves against the windows, when fear seeps pooling in every vague depression, diluting and dissolving us, diminishing us, suspending us, drifting in a submarine world. When you're drowning, any hand will do. Yeah, I, I just think it's interesting that John seems to be a little uncomfortable with intimacy with a man, but then 
he's kind of uncomfortable with intimacy with everybody, I guess. I mean, we haven't even switched writers here since, you know, the previous issue that we're talking about, so... Yeah. Yeah, so we have a couple of pages here of John Waring. He reveals to us that Geotronic's official project on the books is a tracking system for submarines using the planet's electromagnetic landscape, which we can understand to mean the ley lines. Yeah, although there's also a, a, a real non-pseudoscientific electromagnetic landscape that dolphins use to navigate. Yeah, that's right, and they compare what they're doing to dolphins, but that's apparently not the real project. And then John goes over the various factions in his head, the Russians, the Black Squad, England, the Freemasons. He can't figure out how they all fit together. Now through the window, we catch for a second time a glimpse of the man with the patchy coat and the stick, and we hear for the first time his phrase that he keeps repeating, I'm a broken man. At Geotronics, Mercury has finally realized they're doing bad stuff. Yes, and she has decided to go on strike. Right, and she runs into the stone circle and leaves her body, telling Dr. Fulton, If you touch my body while I'm gone, I'll let the terror thing out of the trap. Little cow! He, uh, says to himself in frustration. He grabs a handful of tranquilizers and the old tapes of her trips into people's brains and starts trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, Fulton is under a lot of stress, which he wonders if that is possibly a side effect of the fear machine. Must be working too hard. That's what Siskin said. This is our first mention of a character named Siskin. Put a pin in that. I don't... I don't want to damage my trade. Oh, okay. I just... Maybe jot it down on a post-it. I mean, it is newsprint. It's not going to last <laughs> forever, but... <laughs> okay. Well, Mercury knows about Siskin, even though they've tried to hide his existence. And we get a flashback to the last scaredy that she worked on today. This is a kid named Matthew Riley, whose fear is cancer from the nuclear site at Sellafield. And we get a pretty cool scary image here, cancer hauling itself across the fields from Sellafield to get him. Yeah, now she also mentions that these days it doesn't seem nearly so hard to get the terrors into the trap. It was as if once they got near it, they wanted to go in. Yeah. That's now, ominous. Now, Mercury has studied defense against the dark arts under Professor Lupin, so she knows that you just imagine a boggart as something silly, and so she imagines the cancer has bagpipes and is able to defeat it. Yeah, I got the impression it was less that by imagining it as bagpipes, she somehow defeated it, as, like, she was always stronger than it, because it's not her terror. Right. But imagining it as bagpipes was the only way that she could bear to touch it to drag it into the fear trap. Yeah, I think that's right, because it's so gross. Next, we get a page of the word Hellblazer, and yeah, we see these from time to time when the trade contains, when the breakdown of pages requires a blank page where there was an ad in the original comic. Right. Um, so Mark gets cocky and decides to check out the inside of the trap, and instead of revealing what she sees right off, we get this flashback as it reminds her of a time she almost got hit by a car when she was four. In the brief looming seconds of rubber smoke and squealing tires, she'd understood that death was real, fast, hard, and hopeless, while she was very soft and small. She'd forgotten that feeling. Until now. We turn the page and get a beautiful, full-page splash of the terror thing. And by beautiful, I mean disgusting. Yeah, it has a lot of mouths. It has some heads and snakes and tentacles sticking out of it. Yeah, the head at the top of the page is wearing bombsite Bill's Kaiser helmet. 
Oh, is that what it was? Okay. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, That's so what there's it, is. A, it looks like there's also fetuses sticking out of it. So there's all these tentacles and pustules, but there's a a man who's sort of half submerged in it and is shouting, Help me! And that's Siskin, right? Right. We will shortly confirm what we were probably already guessing. That is Siskin. The trap held it, but the shock aged her centuries. In an instant, she knew that playtime was finished forever. This was how the scaries felt. Meanwhile, Fulton is checking out some readings. And he's thinking, They know so little. They're going too fast. It's like the early days of nuclear physics. They're trying to use something they don't understand, and it's running away with them. And what he specifically discovers that scares him is that there's violent brain activity in Siskin's brain, which has been catatonic for months. Right. Mercury did something that got him to wake up and interact with her somehow. Now he wants to shut down the whole thing, but he can't do that with Mercury in the system. Meanwhile, in the Highlands... Right, so we cut back to Pagan Nation, where we find... Marge and Zed, both all dolled up, naked with a bunch of paint all over them. The men are guarding the outside of the circle, and the women are basically doing a secret ritual to bring back Mercury. Right. All the men can do is guard the outside. The real magic is inside, where only the women are. And Marge reflects on the fact that she knows John is going to fail. Only girl power can save Merc. Right. She thinks of John. She still wants him, needs him even, but he's just a child. He'll never know the mysteries that mothers share of love and sex and life. Well, that's nice. Well, that's more or less what you said. Girl power. And it pretty much seems like Marge and Zed have sex here. Oh, yeah. Well, if by seems like it, you mean that we see a panel of it happening. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, it's R-rated sex, so it could be a little less ambiguous. Right. Come out of the darkness... Zed says to uh, an effigy that they've made. Come, Mercury, come to us. Come home. Your mother and sisters are waiting. Now, whether she's contacted by this ritual or she just comes to this decision on her own, Mercury decides she's going to have to escape. Yeah, I got the impression that it was just sheer coincidence. (laughs) But Mercury does get herself out of trouble at this point. Or starts to. She has to face the terror thing, else it would catch her and destroy her as it had Siskin. He begs her to bring him with, but she says no adamantly. But before she leaves, he's got a message for the director. Shut it down. It's out of control. Every time they exercise the terror, it grows. Yeah. And before we leave Siskin, he gives the creature in the terror trap a name. Jalakuntilioken. Is that a special move? <laughs> that's, that's where he turns upside down, spins with his legs. Jalakantilioken! <laughs> that is hard to say. Jalakantilioken. Okay. Mercury reflects that it's wrong and she knows it's wrong, but she can't let herself get dragged down with Siskin. The nightmare must stop. It's time to go home. Meanwhile, John has just wrapped up two days with Morpheus, who in this series has really luxuriant hair. Do you want to recap really quickly what happened in the Hellblazer-Sandman crossover? So, Sandman needed his bag of sand, which is one of his artifacts. That's right. And John had acquired it at one point, but he also acquired a junkie girlfriend. 
Yeah, who sold everything of his of any value, including his collection of Silver Surfer comic books. <laughs> you remember that part. <laughs> yeah. She also got hold of the bag and was using it as, like, basically the best high available. And she was wasting herself away. Yeah, just using dreams as a drug. Now, she died, Sandman, in a stroke of mercy, which he only granted at Constantine's urging, gave her a sweet dream to die to, basically. Yeah. And also, to reward Constantine for helping him out, he cured the nightmares. With John's been having since Newcastle. Right, that he's been having ever since his first run-in with Nurgle years ago. Yeah, so all that happened in Sandman number three, and we are just now catching up to it in Hellblazer. That is right. Uh, meanwhile, on this page, Fulton knows he's dead if Merc is still catatonic when the director gets back, and then suddenly she just says, Hello! <laughs> Basically scares the crap out of him by being awake when he didn't expect it. She tells him that she talked to Siskin, that he can't understand Siskin's message, and that Siskin is not coming back. Well, basically, she uses the fact that Fulton is exhausted out of his mind and has a soft spot for her to convince him to let her out of the facility. Yeah, specifically, she convinces him to go for a drive in his car. Well done, Merc. John picks up Simon Hughes to go to Joan Talbot's funeral. Nearby, we see the homeless guy, the broken man. No more clues at all about the guy with the crazy shoes and the Gladstone bag. He tells Talbot... These Geotronics people are at the heart of it. I can feel it in my bones. All those suicidal scientists in your article. The mad ways they killed themselves. I mean, driving your car off with your head tied to a tree. Electrodes to tooth fillings. Scissors in the eyes. There's an influence, and they were close to it. They walk into the churchyard with the homeless guy following. They say hi to Jeff, who tells them that no one came to the funeral but the vicar and the undertakers. What about your daughter? Australia. Couldn't afford the airfare. Thought she was mad when she went, but she had the right idea. This country's gone to the bloody dogs. I sort of wondered when Jeff is talking about how this doesn't feel like his country anymore, and John sort of agrees with him, whether this is like standard old conservative guy rumbling, or more a reference to the kind of rising tide of fear and violence that Delano often calls attention to in Constantine. Well, that and the fact that there's this massive government conspiracy that's screwing everything up. That's true, but all Jeff really knows about it at this point is that there's, you know, some bad cops. Right. John introduces Hughes to Talbot, and I liked this dialogue between the two of them. You a queer? I'm gay, yes. You a lefty? Yes. Do you believe in justice? I don't believe it's a natural law like gravity. I think you have to fight for it. Fair enough. Yeah, justice is not like gravity. Madness is. <laughs> right. Jeff agrees to join forces and says Constantine will have to meet the Russian. Now, at this point, the broken man grabs him, stuffs something into his mouth, and then shouts, Chalakantilokan! as he falls in front of the train. Yeah. Or maybe Constantine kind of accidentally pushes him in front of the train, trying to get out off him? No, I think he jumped. Oh, okay. John is heard to shout, hey, don't! Oh, yeah, that's right. it looks like actually he's trying to, he's trying to grab him and stop yeah. him. But he fails. Yeah, John mentions that this guy has been following him for days. Thought he was just another schizo they'd kicked out of hospital. You know how we all ignore them because they make us feel so helpless. Ah, there's some social commentary. He stuffed this in me gob as he jumped. Why'd he pick on me? What the bloody hell's the gog? 
They open up the flyer that he's stuffed in Constantine's mouth. It says, Tremble, the G-O-A-G is coming. And there's a symbol. It's that symbol, says Simon. I've seen it before. The bastard who strangled me. He wore it on his ring. And we cut to a panel of Webster. Yeah, with the rope. All right, so that leaves us in the middle of a mystery, but we're making some headway, I guess? Yeah, definitely things have fleshed out. We've gotten a much greater sense of the danger and the rules of this particular supernatural happening from these three issues. Yeah, I guess John needed to get back in London to pick up some narrative momentum. That relaxing in the country was way too relaxing. <laughs> Yeah, I thought these were pretty strong. There were a couple of places where the art and maybe the writing could have done a better job. Mm -hmm. But in general, they were pretty effective. There are a couple of unlikely coincidences. That's not really a story breaker for me, but I will point it out nonetheless. I mean, the big one, as you pointed out, is John walks into a bar and happens to find the exact man he needs. Yeah, so that is definitely my pick for the most Constantine moment of... <laughs> well, come back to that. No, come back to that. The other one, I guess I would say, is that the guy who lives across the street from him turns out to also have been investigating this mystery and have useful information. Uh, not across the street, even. The hall, I meant to say. Right, the guy down the hall from him. Yeah. He, he can see the guy's door through his keyhole. Yeah, so now we have a clue going forward. We have the Russian. And, and we have Jalakantiliokan, a.k.a. the G-O-A-G... Well, if you think that that's what the GOAG is. Fair enough. It could be some kind of governmental organization. So it seems like we've got a number of villains lined up, but we finally got some sort of mystical threat of real weight. Yeah, yeah. We've got scary monsters and super creeps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although no, no creeps with superpowers, I suppose. Yeah, and I mentioned this with the first part as well. It's good to see John sort of working with a team and working with other people. Uh, it's good to see him having more of a sense of community and having just a, a broader cast to the book. Yeah, if nothing else, it gives him somebody to to bounce ideas off of. Yeah. So we're a little less reliant on those purple narration boxes. Yeah, that's Although right. we still get plenty of them. Yeah, I don't know how many of these characters are going to stick around after this arc. But I'm enjoying the long-form storytelling, if only because it allows the book to tell a story with a larger cast and more more agents uh, with their own aims and, and goals. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot Go of ahead. issues to this story arc. You know, it's a nine-part story, but it actually feels like we're going somewhere again, unlike, you know, we had a couple of issues. Right after where, Newcastle, especially. Right, and before the resolution to that as well, Yeah, uh, where it sort of felt like we were just treading water. So, so yeah, this story is working out nicely. And I guess we're building up also to the reunion between John and Zed, which is going to be either very dramatic or insufficiently dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I guess we'll we'll just have to see which it is. She obviously has some reasons to be pissed at him, although I'm not sure she really knows about them yet. <laughs> yeah, it's unclear how much of her traumatic experience she remembers. I suppose... It could even be unclear that this is the same Zed or not. Right. We can't be entirely sure. Yeah, well, definitely a strange character and a powerful one from what we've seen. 
It raises the question of what's happened to her in the time since we last saw her. Obviously, adapted. Yeah, and powerful magically and also just powerful sexually, you know? Well, yeah, she's uh, charismatic. Right. She's an object of, of intense fascination for Marge now, as she was for John when they first met. Yeah, that's right. So, you picked out a Constantine moment? I did. I, I, my most Constantine moment of these three issues was when he catches a big break in his case by walking into a bar. <laughs> okay, I had a couple of contenders here, but I think the best one is probably when he is able to slip away from the police on scene because they're looking at a woman who happens to be in her underwear. <laughs> <laughs> Just a half-naked woman wanders onto frame, and the police look at her instead. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, you know what? That sort of reminds me of um, in Metal Gear Solid 2... <laughs> or I yeah. guess I guess a number of the the Metal Gear Solid games had the had the book item. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Which is like <laughs> you leave a dirty magazine out, and the guards become so distracted by it that uh, they are fundamentally neutralized. Yeah, that's right. That's fantastic stuff. Yeah. Well, that brings us to a segment I like to call "Hey Sean, read this." This week, Sean is going to be reading Imaginary Fiends number one. Out this month from Vertigo Comics. This was written by Tim Seeley with art by Stephen Molnar. That's a fun title. Now, you had conceived of a show called Fiends using the theme song from the show Friends. <laughs> right, yeah. Which would have been about various angel villains hanging out. Well, specifically the Circle of the Black Thorn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because they do. They, they spend a lot of time together. <laughs> you know, they're, they're tight. Yeah. yeah, that's right. They work together and they are also friends. There may not be genuine love and affection, but there is certainly camaraderie of sort. All right, well, let's get into it. Okay. Okay, so as we said, you just finished reading uh, Imaginary Fiends, number one. So that was written by Tim Seeley, who we know from all sorts of stuff. Prior to this, he already created Revival and Hackslash. He's also been the writer on Nightwing since okay. the Rebirth event. Uh, and I think before Rebirth, he wrote or co-wrote Grayson with Tom King, I believe. Okay. Well, let me start with a question. How many of these have been weird procedurals? I think it's at least three, right? There was the Justin Jordan one with the terrorism... And then there's this one, and then there's the, um... And I want to go back through them all, but I remember that there was another one that was Cop Show. And, mm -hmm. and maybe two more, depending on how well, American Vampire and... What's the one with the invisible monsters? This one? <laughs> <laughs> depending on how those would have shaken out. Maybe you're thinking of iZombie is one oh, of the iZombie was one, yeah. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Anyway, so, I mean, we start out here with a little girl getting murdered, and then later we're in a mental institution. I think she only gets wounded. Oh, you think she's alive? I believe they say that Melba is locked up for attempted murder. Oh, you know what? That's true. That's true. I forgot about that. So she could show up again, but I don't know if she will. But anyway. I was pretty surprised that she didn't, considering that they, they make it clear that she's alive. Okay. So... And then we're in a mental institution where this Melba woman is being held for for that crime, although we don't find out exactly that for a little while yet. And then she gets a visit from an FBI agent who tells her that imaginary friends are actually extra-dimensional beings who feed on human affection, 
but sometimes they basically refuse to break off our relationship and they get the strength to interact with the physical world, so he needs somebody to be his partner in a weird cop show right. and well, arrest they, them. They like human friendship. What they like even more is, is fear. Yeah. Once they start experiencing fear, it becomes addictive to them. Yeah. So he needs her to help him investigate because she's an advanced case because that's what led to her stabbing the girl in the first place is that she had an imaginary friend that told her to do it, which makes this a comic book adaptation of that Slenderman murder, which is gross and too soon. Really? So you didn't you didn't like it? I did not like it. I thought this comic book was really good. Okay. I thought that the character design of the main imaginary fiend, Polly Peachpit, was mm-hmm. really cool. She sort of has like a, a Japanese-influenced look, uh, and she also sort of looks like a spider demon. Yeah. I thought both the writing and the art did a great job of conveying the concept. The art looks exactly... Like comic book art should, I think. I will give you the monster designs, but I think the writing was very ham-handed. I mean, this FBI agent walks in in the first issue, sits the main character down, and tells her what the concept is. And it takes, like, four pages. Well, I kind of liked that. I thought that, first of all, I thought that scene worked as more than exposition, because the... The idea of this video, and some people can see this creepy thing in it and other people can't, is so spooky to me. But I also just liked that they made the concept clear. Mm-hmm. Instead of like what you often well, get in horror comics, which is, you're not going to know what's going on until we're rushed into explaining it all in the last issue, which we will never do to your satisfaction. <laughs> you know, they aren't afraid to actually show us. They're not afraid that the whole thing is going to fall apart under the weight of its own nonsense if they let us in on what the actual you know, <laughs> concept of the story is. I, I get that, and I, I recognize that I had the exact opposite complaint about Clean Room. That by the end of the first issue of Clean Room, you don't really know what the concept of the story is. Right. This felt like reading the pitch. <laughs> Interesting. So how did you feel about the art? Uh, the art was cool. I'll give you the monster designs. The character designs were crisply functional. So I, I have to push back on the idea that it was an adaptation of the Slenderman attempted murder, mm. and that that's creepy and too soon. There's no element of internet to this story. There's no, like, element of mass hysteria. It's almost, to me, like a timeless kind of horror setup. It's like, imaginary friends are real, lots of them are evil, that's fucking spooky as hell. It's a story that, I mean, you know, kids have been, kids have had imaginary friends for for centuries. You know, it's a story that could almost be set in any time. I guess that's true. That's true, because it's just Melba's imaginary friend, not an imaginary friend that they read about on the internet. And the kids do talk about the internet, which is kind of interesting in and of itself, the way that the way that small children talk about the internet in this comic. Right. I thought that that was a pretty decent attempt at a realistic look at, you know, today's culture. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't really enjoy it. I think I have difficulty forgiving the main character. Oh, yeah, that's true. She definitely does something terrible. Yeah, I mean, and she, she tried to kill another kid. And it's, it's not revealed, as you might think it would be, that Polly Peach Pit did it. Which right, that's is probably the more dramatic of the two available reveals. I'll give you that. Did you think that Cameron Kelly was going to be the main character? It seemed to be setting that up, yeah, and then he wasn't. Or... He seems to be a character of significance at this point. There's some weird myth arc set up in this issue, too. 
He's got an imaginary friend. Yeah, his imaginary friend is Charlie Chokecherry, which is the husband of Polly Peachpit. <laughs> That's established. Listen, I'm not a brony. I don't know what you're getting at. <laughs> right. uh, so I guess it's safe well, to say... I did think that was funny when the FBI agent goes, we call him Marshall Locke. His real name is Gerald Flatfitz. <laughs> We gotta deal with we gotta deal with monsters who have silly ass names in this series. Yeah, yeah. I, I also just like she like she shows her badge and introduces herself. She's like you know Melba Lee and like Polly Peachpit is behind her like Polly Peachpit, but nobody hears it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So like this imaginary friend that he's got is trying to pursue some kind of some kind of interdimensional monster vendetta that we don't know what that's about. But, okay. Right. Yeah. And Cameron also obviously wants revenge. It's also strange... It's strange to think that they have their own independent existence, but they also look like imaginary friends. I mean, there was a lizard in a cowboy hat riding a tricycle. Yes, there was. And I guess he was just like that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I... The kid didn't make that up. Well, they're imps, you know? They're imps from another dimension. They might have some kind of shape-shifting abilities. Oh, I guess that's yeah, possible. You know, yeah, yeah. That's something they can flesh out later. So I really enjoyed this comic book, but I guess it's safe to say that you will not be reading Imaginary Fiends number two? No, I don't think so. Well, all right. Imaginary Fiends number one, new from Vertigo. You might either buy it or not buy it, depending on which of us you think is cooler. And <laughs> <laughs> if really... Really, if doing a podcast wasn't about figuring that out, (laughs) what was the point? (laughs) Right, exactly. In our next Constantine episode, we'll be concluding the Fear Machine story arc. But first, Preacher takes us back to the birth of a legend in The Saint of Killers. Hey, I want to give a shout out to my friend Joanna. She and her husband Ryan just started a new podcast called What's Lightsaber's Precious? It's about Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. It's hilarious and fascinating. You can find it on SoundCloud, and we'll link to it in the show notes. It's totally worth your time, and you should check it out. Hey, if you like our show, why don't you check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. You can contact us on Gmail. That's vertiguys at gmail.com. Facebook, facebook.com slash vertiguys, or on Twitter at vertiguys. That's right. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to answer some listener questions on air. If you're listening on iTunes, it would be a big help for us as well as to help other people find the podcast if you give us a rating or review. Uh, and as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>